Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is director Terry Gilliam, who has been one of my favorites going back to the 80s and the days of Time Bandits in Brazil. Those movies established Terry as a great maverick director working outside the system, but he made some pretty terrific movies within the system as well, like The Fisher King and Twelve Monkeys. Gorgeous new 4K editions of The Fisher King and Time Bandits are newly available from Criterion, chock full of the label's usual supplementary features, and I use the occasion of these releases as an excuse to hop on Zoom with Terry and talk about the making of the films. Here's our conversation. Terry, on the Criterion commentary for Fisher King, you say that you broke all three of your personal rules about filmmaking. You worked from someone else's script, you worked for a major Hollywood studio, and you worked in America. So I'm curious, first of all, why were those rules that you created for yourself in the first place? And then why did you decide to break them with the Fisher King? The rules were basically put together by myself to protect me from temptation, is what it was. I really felt I was capable of selling out very quickly if given a chance. So this is my way of protecting myself. And it was only after uh, we finished Munchausen and the studio basically buried the film, um, and I went into a deep depression and decided, all right, my career is over. I might as well throw out these rules I've made and just get on with my life and do anything to keep busy. Well, it's funny that you, you know, you say you had this, you thought you would have this temptation to sell out because I vaguely remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my memory is that when Fisher King won the audience award at Toronto, the speech you gave said something to the effect of thanks for justifying my decision to sell out. But the movie seems pretty radical. It seems pretty radical even then for a studio film. And I think if a studio released it today, it would be the most adventurous movie on its slate. Um, So when you made that comment, I mean, were you being a little bit facetious or did you really did you really feel like it was a sellout movie on some level no i didn't feel i'd sell sold out at all i just i just had to say something smart ass basically it's just to justify my existence <laughs> it's <laughs> i mean i i was the, the the way it began was a script arrived for the adams family from my agent because they were trying to push me to do the Adams Family. And it had been a month or so getting it just perfect for me. I read the script and I said, ah, no, not for me. And my agent had cleverly included this other little script with it. And I opened the little script there. And in about two pages, I said, this is brilliant writing. Richard Legravenez had just written great characters, great dialogue. It just it just got to me immediately. It just hooked me. And that was my reason for selling out because it was so wonderful and getting a chance to work with a great cast. <laughs> well, this was the first film, like you said, that you directed that you didn't either write or co-write. And did that change your approach at all as a director? Not really, because uh, I have never known what my approach as a director is. Uh, what it did do is make me determined to keep Richard Legravenez on the set every day. I said, this is not going to be a Terry Gilliam film. This is a Richard Legravenez film. It's your baby. And I hope I can raise this foster child of mine decently. And so I kept Richard very close because I, I, I just have always felt strongly about the writers of things. And that when one takes on something that they've written, all you can do is try to be true to what it was about. Of course, I can't stop myself from fiddling. (laughs) 
and I fiddled. <laughs> I, the most interesting fiddle was the first one, which was the script was brilliant for probably three quarters and maybe a bit more. And then it went silly. It ended up this idea of, of this quest for the grail or stealing the grail had to be done, oh, in a cool way. And and the character of Jack that um, Jeff Bridges plays was putting on uh, roller skates to do the job. And I thought, this is just stupid. And I said to Richard, why? And and it was this, the, the, the story that you get all the time is he was trying to get the film made and the people at the studio were coming up with these ideas that they felt were quite wonderful. And as much as he resisted them, he compromised along the way. And I said, Richard, show me your original script, the one you wrote on your own with no money being passed to you. And let me read it. And I read it and I said, that's the film I want to make, the one you first wrote before you compromised, before you sold out, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that you were the one in a way pushing to make it more realistic, given your previous films that are all kind of rooted in fantasy. Yeah, I felt I just love the characters. I love the world. I think I made choices because the, the script is originally written, should have been um, done by Woody Allen. It, it, it was that describing the world that he sort of fi films in. And I felt now it needs something more just to justify my existence. And so I approached it as if we were doing a fairy tale. Um, and, and in my own mind, invented a world of this, this, this special world that was surrounded by a great moat, the East River, the Hudson River. And that in that, you had to do things that would be appropriate for a fairy tale. So Lydia is a prisoner, uh, the princess in the great stone tower. And that's why I chose the building I chose that she works in. And then for Jack, he's basically the Fisher King. And he has lost touch with his heart. And so I chose the most... Um, razor-like building in New York. It's on 57th Street, and it, it is like a cutthroat razor. And I thought, that's what it needs to be, stale and glass, nothing warm like um, Anne's place or a video shop. I said, that's the peasant uh, cottage in the great forest. So it's surrounded by great tall buildings, but it's just sort of a two-story little building in New York. And so by approaching it that way, at least it made sense that I was telling a tale, an old-fashioned tale. And and I, 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 I thought, I have to fool myself to think I'm doing something original all the time. And I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned the video store. I love the production design of the video store where you've got the, the office in the same space as, like, the porno movies and stuff. I mean, that's... <laughs> Where did you come up with that idea? Well, it just seemed right because the, all all video shops have the porno era, no, area normally in another room. And she just had this little shop. There were only two rooms, effectively. And so it had to be her office. And it did allow things like uh, one of the customers, which is played by Stephen Bridgewater, who actually works very hard with Jeff Bridges to get turn him into a, a shock jock. Uh, and 
So it was a chance for Stephen to come into the thing, ask for something. And then also it was very good for the end where where Jeff finally comes and says these very, very painfully difficult words, which he had never said in the movie, I love you. And when she punches him in the face for it, they crash and all the porno videos come crashing down around them. I thought, that's a great future for these kids. <laughs> Well, Bridges is just fantastic in the movie. I mean, really all four of the leads are, are great. And in terms of the way you work with actors and create an environment that's going to facilitate their best work, I mean, uh, what kind of conversations did you have with them in pre-production? And are you the kind of director who do you like to have a rehearsal period? Well, I have never had a rehearsal period before Fisher King. Uh, I never had. We didn't have the time or the availability, the actors, but we did in Fisher King. And so we did have rehearsal, uh, and it's basically just a, a way of getting everybody, the main cast, together and to get comfortable with each other. So everybody tries their little ideas out, and we can decide before the camera starts going that that will go with that and we won't go with that. And I just try to create an atmosphere where, well, I've always said, I create the playpen that everybody's playing in, and I make sure that the adults and the studio executives are kept out of the playpen, because we play is what we do. We are children, highly paid children is what we are. Well, you know, Robin Williams had uh, a real reputation for being somebody who just would come with an abundance of ideas, and I'm wondering with someone like that, and, and even with Jeff Bridges, who, you know, you talk on the commentary about him having like a little bag of tricks, like a little twitch he does with his eye and things like that. When you have these actors who have so many ideas and so much to give you, is there a challenge or a downside in terms of knowing what to use and what not to? I mean, how do you keep your objectivity and discern the ideas that are right for the movie from the ones that aren't when the actors are throwing so much at you? I don't know. I just work by instinct. It's just gut feelings about things. I don't, I never try to analyze. I always wrap myself with the film around me. I, I, I let the film possess me, and then my ego vanishes, and I can then make decisions that the film is making and not me making. And with someone like Robin, because we had just worked on, on Baron Munchausen um, before, and we got on so well, and I was very, very concerned, worried about the fact that together we get giggly and so ridiculous, and we sort of float off into the stratosphere and beyond, and I didn't want that. And that's one of the reasons why Jeff was so important to me, because he was the anchor. He grounded both Robin and myself to stop us being silly, and and that was vital. What happened, though, at on almost every other day, there would be a scene and Robin would start ad-libbing because he actually felt he had a responsibility to his fans to give them Robin Williams. And and there was no way of stopping it, to be honest. The trick was to let him do a take and go for it. And then I'd say, all right, Rob, that was great. There was two things in that that were not in the script and they were good. Let's leave those and now let's go back to the script. And he was very happy to play the game like that, and it worked. I think his performance, I, I watched the film only last night again for the first time in probably 20 years, and I was utterly blown away by Robin. He should have won an Oscar for that performance, and he's so 
painful and so real and and heartfelt and romantic everything it's just spectacular beyond belief in fact all all of them are it's a great cast it's not just um, Mercedes, Amanda, Jeff, and Robin, but we have to keep Michael Jeter in there. He was the fifth member, and he's spectacular. <laughs> yeah, I agree about William's performance. I mean, watching the movie again, I had forgotten how powerful the sense of loss and tragedy is for that character. And and the scene that where you where he you see the flashback to the way his wife is killed. Um, that's a really, really powerful scene. And I love the fact that you made that choice to shoot it the way you did, but it's very, very harsh for a, an ostensible comedy. I mean, was that something that you got any kind of resistance uh, from the studio on? There was probably some murmurs, <laughs> but I just, I say this, the point to me that this story is such a beautiful, tragic, romantic tale, and it has to be told with, with all the darkness that is part of what Perry is. Uh, and so that's what I had to do. I mean, there was a great worry about her brains being splattered all over his face, but it works. It's so powerful and you understand the character. I also did, and as a previous scene, a previous scene when we first see the red light for this first time, first time, and I had Jeff change the line a little bit because he starts saying to Perry, I know who you are. I know who you are. You're not this. And Robin actually starts having a fit, basically. And he's on the ground screaming and, and writhing about. And that wasn't really in the script. <laughs> I put those things in because I wanted weight. Because yeah, I think if you're going to be honest about the stories you're telling, that's part of it. The ugliness, the horror is all part of it. And it's interesting because Jeff Bridges at that time, I remember seeing the movie when it came out and I loved him in as this character, but it was very, very unexpected for him to play somebody just the whole demeanor, the, the whole way he played it as this kind of slick, dark, you know, Howard Sterney kind of guy. And I'm curious what made you think of him because he, it wasn't the kind of, you, you know, up until that point, you think of Jeff Bridges, you think of Starman and you, or you think of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. I mean, I guess he was, I guess he was the killer in Jagged Edge, but generally you think of him as this very affable guy. It was, I'll tell you exactly how it happened. I was on a plane heading out to Los Angeles and Baker, the Baker boys were on and I watched it and I, I was almost screaming at the pilot, speed up, get back into LA, I got to get off this plane. That's the guy that I want. And it was really from Baker's Boy that I just thought, oh God, Jeff, you're incredible. And he was, he's, he's one of the great, great actors because he doesn't let you see that he's acting. It's so believable. Everything he does, it flows off him and that's who he is. And it, he didn't get the kind of reviews that I had hoped for him when the film came out. They were so in awe of Robin and Mercedes. They paid no attention to Jeff. Jeff is the movie. He's the one that holds the whole thing together. It's a great performance. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, I think he's always been one of those actors who's sort of a victim of his own greatness in the sense that, like you say, you never see him acting. So I think and he's given a lot of performances that didn't really get their due and their time. And that scene with him and Mercedes Rule and uh, Robin Williams and Amanda Plummer, that dinner scene, that first, that double date dinner scene they have together is so 
natural and lovely and funny and uh, something like that. I'm wondering how much of that is scripted and how much are you just letting them go and how much footage did you have to sift through to piece that scene together? That was basically ad-libbed that scene. Uh, there's The script was there. There's a few comments that, don't, that are made, but most of it is ad-libbed. And it was one of those moments when we were supposed to be shooting in Central Park that night, and it rained. We couldn't do it, and the only set we had available was down in Chinatown, where that, that that's a real restaurant. And we rushed down there and tried to get everything going, and we started doing the scene, and it didn't, it wasn't quite working. This was a bit too um, controlled, and and I just started pushing them, go for it, just play do I don't care what you do just and so Amanda started it and then Robin would start uh, riffing off of what she was doing and we we shot for a little bit and then it was now about three o'clock in the morning the crew was tired we were all rather exhausted by then and Robin got up and gave us 45 minutes of stand-up comedy just to reinvigorate the entire crew. He had jokes about every member of the crew that were specific to them. It was breathtaking. We all just realized, had not realized, we knew who we were working with, but to, to see it, that, that ad-libbing ad in the way he did, and with everybody involved in what he was, the jokes he was telling, it was so beautiful and it set us up for the rest of the evening and so we just started doing it so I just kept shooting and as you see in that scene it wipes across there's a black line and so because there was no way to cut it together in a normal way so I just came up with this thought of, we'll just wipe from one moment to the next moment we can set up the rhythm and make it work and it's it's just one of the sweetest things in the film I think and has watching scenes like that and watching William's performance in the movie changed for you at all, given what happened with him and his suicide and everything? I mean, is it more, is it, does it make it more painful to watch or does it make it more pleasurable? It's just honest is what it is when I watch it. That is Robin. There's, there was a moment when Robin wanted to kill me. <laughs> That's, it's, forget about suicide, forget about murder, <laughs> think more about murder. And it was the scene at the end of the moment after we've had that flashback to his wife dying and him running from the red night through the streets, going crazier and crazier. And things were taking longer than we wanted. And we then had to go down to uh, the southern end of Manhattan to shoot the scene when the two thugs turn up and he gets knifed. And and by then, the dawn was just creeping up in the distance and the sky was getting lighter. And we did one take and it was it was actually very good. But Robin was so angry that we had rushed this incredibly important moment for everything else we were doing. And he, he just became like, I don't know, so angry, so Mount Rushmore, and nobody knew how to deal with him. The first assistant came over to me and said, I can't do anything. I'm, I'm actually a bit frightened. And so I had to go over and, and say, Rob, trust me, please trust me. If this, what was just shot, doesn't work, will we reshoot the whole thing again? You have to trust me that. And I had to grab him and hold him like a, a child. And 
that's when the moment when I first realized how incredibly strong he was. He was nothing but muscle, and he wanted to kill me. It's all I knew. But that I calmed him down, and it all worked beautifully. It was the only moment where I really sensed Robin's physical prowess and and his the anger and and I. And I can I can't visualize his suicide, but I can understand it how he could kill himself as he did. It was an extraordinary that was an extraordinary act alone. Anyway, well, it's so interesting watching the movie now because it's all about isolation and how the media can make us feel more alone rather than less. And obviously, in the age of social media, that's all gotten worse. I mean. For you watching the movie again the other night, did, do you feel it has different or deeper resonances now than it did when you made it? Well, it doesn't admit him any different resonances for me, except that it just is so touching and moving, moving and lovely. I don't know what it is for other people because, yes, the world progressed from those days <laughs> into something that is actually madness. Is you know, the, in the sense, the movie was kind of like opening a Pandora's box. <laughs> And the Howard Stearns have grown, and everybody can be their own Howard Stern, and they can say anything like they want about you and destroy other people and remain anonymous. That's the bad thing. At least Jack Lucas is punished for his his negativity, his his brutality. Well, I want to also talk about Time Bandit since that's being reissued by Criterion, and that one was just also you know, a delight to revisit and it, a very interesting movie tonally because, you know, it's a children's film, but by today's standards, it's quite dark. And, you know, at the time you made it, who did you see as the intended audience? Was it a movie for kids? Was it a movie for adults? Was it just a movie for, for you? Do you think about those things? What were your, what were your feelings about children's films in general at the time? And how did you see this fitting in? Well, I think we said in the end that it was, intelligent enough for children and exciting enough for adults is what the film was. <laughs> it was it was literally meant for all the family. What was happening at that particular point, the the studios were were categorizing everything. This is for children, this is for adults, this is for teenagers, this is and and I said, forget about that. Fuck it. This is for everybody. And I wanted it work it work to work like that. And and children you know, if one, which does as I do, read Grimm's fairy tales, they are dark. That's the point of them. Children are, are resilient, has always been my feeling, and they can take a scare or two, and they might learn in the in the course of it. That's what basically most fairy tales are about. They're moral tales. And uh, and I, that's my feeling on Time Bad, is I did have the only fight I had with my producer, who was also my manager at that point, uh, was uh, was over the end when the parents blow up, uh, and I said, "Well, they should have listened to their child. Their kid knew best." And it was it was ready for children everywhere in the world. Keep telling your parents all their faults. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I saw the movie as a child when it came out, and that was my favorite part was where the parents got blown up. I thought, great, you know, as, as a kid, that was a wonderful fantasy to, uh, to to have the parents actually have to pay for not listening to you. Well, that was that was what was interesting. All the young boys I talked to had the same reaction. All the girls had a very different reaction. They were really worried about Kevin. Now, his parents are gone. The, the girls were already mothering. <laughs> 
at, at six or seven years old. <laughs> it's like, which is, yeah, don't fight biology, folks. <laughs> I was surprised to read the Time Bandits had a budget of around $5 million, which was low even at that time for a movie of this scope. And so I'm curious, what were some of your tricks for creating scale with limited resources? Because the movie looks much, much more expensive than that. Well, the first trick, if you want your sets look big, is hire dwarves. <laughs> As I did. <laughs> the point is, the movie, when I wrote, when Mike Pennant and I wrote it, my original idea was I wanted it to be shot from a kid's point of view, so the camera would be low most of the time. And I didn't think one kid could hold the whole movie, so I surrounded him with a gang who are the same size as him. And that that's where it started from. I, I just am very careful about how I shoot. So about an inch to the left or a binge, an inch to the right, if I, I moved the camera that much, you'd probably re realize the set is, is not what it appears to be. <laughs> as a result of Time Bandits and, and previously Jabberwocky, I got to be known as the guy who could make these big-looking films for very little. Uh, uh, that lasted for a few years. <laughs> well, and you had some great actors in that movie, considering the budget, um, like especially Sean Connery and Ralph Richardson. How did they come to be cast, and what was it like working with them? Well, Sean got in because Mike and I had written in the script of the Greek warrior uh, would re pull off his helmet revealing himself to be none other than Sean Connery or an actor of cheaper <laughs> standards. <laughs> and, and Sean, well, again, our producer manager was playing golf with Sean somewhere in America, and it turned out Sean was a Python fan. And then we got the script to him, and he, he really wanted to play the part, and that was fantastic. I mean, he couldn't ask for more. He was, he was absolutely wondrous. And it was me on my uh, only second film on my own. And we're in Morocco on top of this, this great hill and in the extreme heat. And I had several pages of storyboards, which I pulled out to show Sean. So he knew what I was up to. And I said, and he looked at me and says, you're kidding. The boy who's playing Kevin, uh, first time he'd ever been in the movie and he's standing there in awe of the fact he's opposite James Bond and he said shoot the kid first and no actually I tell a lie that's not what he said he said shoot me first I'll get done and then you can spend the rest of the day with the boy and that's how it works I threw up most of my storyboards and just got through it so I loved working with him because he was so pragmatic and so experienced and I'm always so convinced I can do much more than I'm capable of. And he just put me back down on the ground where I belong. <laughs> and, uh, and Ralph Richardson was a, a longer, a, a stranger uh, seduction, I suppose, because I really liked the idea of Ralph Richardson playing um, the supreme being. And I had a meeting with him, and, and I know... I, I'd known stories about him, how difficult he could be. And he, I started talking about, I think uh, he should be like a, a, a fusty headmaster. And he said, no, no, I, I see more uh, uh, closer to the sun. And I, in fact, I think I would like to be uh, dressed in sort of white linen because it's warm. 
and it took me a long time to convince him to be the fusty schoolmaster. It was, it, it was always tricky with with him because he was talking to me about a William Blake drawing where um, Newton as or as God is dividing the cosmos with these divide, dividers, and I was knowledgeable enough to up up him by saying that's actually based on a medieval drawing <laughs> and, and I then dug out the drawing and showed him that so I realized he wasn't dealing with a just a complete fool uh, and and I just kept working on him and finally he came in one day before we started shooting and we had lunch in the studio and he had on the suit that I hoped he would have on and he did, and he was waiting for me, clearly, all through the, the lunch, for me to comment on his suit, which I didn't. <laughs> I I scored some points with that as well. <laughs> it's, he, he, was, he was outrageous because we spent, again, a lot of time talking over everything. Thought it was all, he didn't want any gray areas uh, so that when he comes to work, it's all clear. <laughs> he comes to work on the day that on his big arrival at the end, and there is the stas the the figure of of evil which had been fried and was broken in pieces. And he says, "What is this?" And I said, "Well, it's evil." He said, "But why is it in pieces?" And I said, "Well, that's I thought what we talked about." And it was one of those great moments where he just <sighs> he goes off in the hub, takes it, he says, swatting himself with a script, and just walks away. And I run after him like one had to, tugging my forelock and saying, sir, hold on, let's see, we'll fix it, we'll fix all this. So over lunch, I had the um, the art department put the whole figure of, of uh, evil back together. His argument was, and this is something that only come, came up on the day, is that those pieces, you have to remember that Og was a pig, one of the time banners was a pig, and pigs eat everything and that would be very bad for the pig to eat a piece of evil and oh where did this come from so anyway my groveling worked and he sat down very happily and luckily the the focus puller was sitting next to him and said he had this girly <laughs> a nice girly magazine <laughs> he gave it to Richardson so Richardson was happy <laughs> leafing through a girly magazine <laughs> I think when you're You've got to get rid of your ego when you're directing great actors. <laughs> you're there to serve their needs. And he apparently, or clearly, because I've talked to other people, he has to establish who's the boss when he comes on. And I'm happy for him to be the boss because he produced beautiful work, that's all. <laughs> no, he's great at it. And I guess to, to wrap things up, I just wanted to ask, I was thinking about, you know, these watching Fisher King again and thinking about, your career. It's funny because you've railed against the studio system a lot, but I think some of your best movies, thinking Fisher King and 12 Monkeys in particularly, and also Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, are big studio films. And I'm curious for you, what do you think is the trick to serving your own desires and impulses as, as an artist and still delivering what the studios want or think they want? Because I think you did it pretty successfully. Again, certainly in the cases of Fisher King and 12 Monkeys, you kind of, those are great. Terry Gilliam movies, and they're great studio movies. Well, I think the key is to make sure you've got a couple A-list actors working with you. 
And because I'm always about who's going to be in the foxhole with me for the final battle. <laughs> and that happened on Fisher King and on 12 Monkeys. It got to the point where the studio was really pushing for me to cut this, cut that, cut Tom Waits out of the um, the Ground Central uh, Station scene because he's not pushing the story forward. Oh, come on. And, and I... From that meeting, I went out and had dinner with Robin and Jeff and said, guys, are you on my side or theirs? And they said, we're on yours, Terry. And so I was on the phone the next day to the studio saying, well, sorry, I considered it and I'm not changing anything. And it's I, I, the advantage I've had is I've never had a career is the way I feel about it. So I don't have a career to lose. <laughs> and... And I'm so determined that whatever mistakes I make, they'll be more interesting than what the studio execs' uh, mistakes will be. Because they they're living in fear, because if the film fails, they will get the blame. And I want to be making choices because one's positive. And I surround myself with people who are confident about what they're doing and are, are, are true to the story we're trying to tell. That's all. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. And uh, I want to thank you for doing this with me. This has been great. And it was great to revisit Fisher King and Time Bandits. And uh, I hope everybody picks up these new Criterion remasters and uh, checks them out again because they both they both uh, aged like fine wines. Uh, that's, that's nice to hear. I've always wanted to be a winemaker. I wanted to be Francis Ford Coppola, you see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks so much, Terry. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers.